This is the True North Collective podcast, a gathering of unsugarcoated conversations on authenticity, created by the real-life documentation of everyday humans fearlessly finding their true north. Welcome to season four of the podcast. Hi, I'm Rachel. I really miss leotards from American Apparel. My new favorite way to emotionally release is to ride my bike and scream really loudly or sing at the top of my lungs. And wearing hoops makes me feel sexy as hell. Hi, I'm Christina. I once drank champagne from the real Stanley Cup. I once caught a barracuda deep sea fishing on a line, like without a rod. And I'm easily manipulated in the presence of tacos and a cold Corona. Hi, I'm Janelle. 5% of my day is spent cleaning dirt out of my fingernails. I think most restaurants are overrated and overpriced. And I now wear my cell phone around my neck like Flava Flav wore his clock. And we are your hosts of the True North Collective podcast. Christina, you've lived life. (laughs) (laughs) How do you catch a barracuda without a line, a fishing pole? Like they, they run the line off the back of a boat and you, Ah. and you were in gloves, but you, you pull it in literally the line like by hand oh my gosh how big I, I don't i don't know that that's a specific strategy for catching a barracuda or just <laughs> whatever happens it's like this line without a pole yeah how big was it it was like this big yeah so it wasn't it wasn't like you know ginormous yeah did there. you did you hold it afterwards yeah yeah we have oh pictures. my gosh that's so cool yeah it was a long time ago it was pretty wild where where did you do that that was um deep on a deep sea fishing kind of excursion um i guess in aruba so cool my i come from a line of people who love to fish my grandmother caught a oh gosh now i'm gonna forget because it's too early um but i have her fish they used to stuff them and she was they were fishing for tarpon and um they were fishing and the her pole broke and she grabbed the line and fought the fish and pulled the fish in with their bare hands, which is like, I'm like, uh, maybe she had gloves on, but the story as it gets passed down is like with her like fingers, you know? So I have the fish. It's pretty cool. Yeah, we're, we, we love fishing, like lake fishing up here yeah. a lot. I, well, I will say out of everyone in my immediate family here, I think I'm still the winner of catching the biggest fish. That's amazing. So, That's yeah. awesome. Gotta be patient. Mm-hmm. No. Okay, is the line, it's like actual fishing line, like that thin that you're pulling the, in, or is it thicker the, when you're... For the barracuda? Yeah. Oh, it was, you know, I'm sure it was much thicker. Okay. It was fishing line, but it would have been thick fishing line, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm picturing, I'm like, dang, how do you even hold on? Even with gloves, I feel it would just slip through my hands. Yeah, I don't remember, like, the specifics of the line. Everything else was really bright and sunny and exciting but yeah that that detail escapes me but it was like a it was a it was a deep sea fishing excursion so i'm sure all the equipment would have been whatever it's supposed to be sure that's awesome and then the stanley cup i want to hear the stanley cup story how are you drinking champs out of the cup so it was the year a long 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 time ago that the dallas stars won the cup when mike madano was still playing on that team um and I was uh, doing my undergrad at University of Toronto 
And through the work that I did as a residence Don, we um, knew the psychologist, the sports psychologist. Um, we shared that in common with the Dallas Stars. So he, he worked with the team and he also um, worked with us on a bunch of different things. And so one of the things that got to happen was when they won the cup that year, he got to have it at his house for a weekend. And so I was part of the crew um, and it really has nothing to do with me. It's about his, one of his best friends was, was our boss. And so, so he was invited to come see the cup. And so he brought us with him. So a group of us went and it was pretty amazing as a Canadian, you know, and at the time as a hockey player too, that was pretty wild. That's yeah. amazing. We got to go hang out for a whole afternoon with a cup and its bodyguards and they poured champagne in it and we drank champagne out of it and it was wild. We'll never forget that. That's so cool. Yeah. Fun. And you play hockey? Yeah, I well, did. I learned how to skate like late in life because I actually grew up in the States. I'm Canadian, but I grew up down south in Texas. Um, and so I didn't really learn how to skate properly, honestly, till I was probably like 18 or 19 years old. And it was playing hockey is how I learned how to skate. So I can only skate hockey skating. I can't skate any other way. Um, and I played all through my my 20s, basically. So cool. Yeah. Where in Texas? Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Um, I grew up in... Uh, like Grand Prairie, Arlington. So yeah. between Dallas and Fort Worth. I just moved from Dallas. So it's so funny. Okay. <laughs> I lived yeah, there for three years. I went years. to school. I was in Grand Prairie. And then um, I went to high school for a year, the ninth grade. And uh, it was in Fort Worth, I think, closer mm -hmm. to. It was a long drive. And then we moved back to Canada. And I started the 10th grade here, grade 10. Got it. Whenever anyone says Fort Worth, all I think of is Bill and Bob's. Yeah, we went. That's where I visited Rachel once in Dallas, and we just hoed out and at Billy Bob's. The yeah. I don't know if you ever went there. It's like the line. It's line right. Dancing? It's like the. It's a big um, venue right by the stockyards. Oh, I know where the stockyards are. Yeah. Um, no, I, mean, I, was, I wouldn't have done like probably those kinds of fun things because I was fourteen when I left. So Fair. I have. Um, there's a woman that I worked with whose dad was an announcer. I'm sure her name's Susan. Well, no, she's married. That's her married name now. So I don't know what her like original name was, but, or her original last name. Um, but her dad was an announcer for the, um, for hockey at the NHL. And so she also drank from the Stanley cup and she used to be, she used to work with me in advertising and that was always the random fact that she gave was that yeah. she drank, drank out of the Stanley Cup. It was so funny. Yeah, people don't tend to expect that one from me. So yeah, <laughs> hang on to that one. That's so cool. I love it. I sometimes I'm like, I think I need to do more things just to get more random facts from the podcast. <laughs> it's just like, how do I do something to get this random fact that I can drop at the beginning of the episode? There's, there's like some networking involved there. Like I've, I've had lots of wild experiences um, that are really just, I don't know how I found myself in these situations sometimes just happens. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. yeah. From like traveling and just being willing to do different things and put yourself out there for sure. Different jobs. Totally. totally. Should we introduce you? <laughs> sure. 
I wanted to talk about one of my favorite products. Yes, you've heard me talk about it before. It is Whoop, and Whoop is a wearable like no other. It provides you with data on your recovery, on your sleep, on your strain, and not just the physical strain that you're doing when you're working out, but the strain throughout the day, and that includes psychological strain because stress is real, people, <laughs> and it does take a toll on your body. Whoop is just been life-changing for me coming from the fitness industry and chronically over-exercising, being stressed, not sleeping enough. It's really given me a tool to help me to learn and understand my body better. If you're interested in getting your first month of Whoop free and a free Whoop strap, we will drop a link in the show notes and you can do that via the referral code. Happy Whooping and we'll jump back into the podcast. All right. So... Other than being a hockey playing Texas Canadian badass, I'm gonna say badass because all the stories you told us have been really cool. Christina Crow is a Canadian registered psychotherapist and entrepreneur and a relentless mental health advocate. Christina founded Dig a Little Deeper Psychotherapy and Counseling in 2015, which has grown into a modern self managed group practice with nine other psychotherapists and counselors. Christina maintains her own private practice and provides clinical supervision to graduate counseling interns and currently practicing therapists. To help create more accessible services, Christina also partners with local organizations providing free psychotherapy for some of our most vulnerable community members. Christina's creative outlets are many, but most recently include making entertaining and educational TikTok videos about ADHD, which I'm like, I feel like we need to dive into that one. And I want to go on TikTok right now and see. Um, and one of the most misunderstood conditions in mental health. So welcome to the podcast. Thank welcome, you, Christina. So we like to kick off, um, and we, we got into a little bit of your past, which I love, but what does it look like to be Christina today? Well, like a day in the life of... Um, I'm, I spend probably a lot of my time like one-on-one -on -one with people during the days. Like I have my, my client sessions booked that went from being in person in an office a year ago to mostly online. There's a few, a few one-on-one -on -one sessions I'm doing in person again now. Um, I've got kids. I live with three boys who are amazing and my husband. And so all of us kind of like balancing living together and distance learning and still navigating, getting our vaccines and all that kind of stuff. Uh, two dogs, a cat, a frog are in my house as well. <laughs> so it's busy, but we're used to it. Um, and then I also manage this like amazing group of dedicated therapists and counselors and coaches. And so there's, there's 11 of us right now. And um, I think in the US, when you see groups like this, we're often referred to as like a collective. And so they're not employees. Um, we're a group of like-minded people who I think think very similarly about, about therapy and what we should and shouldn't be doing. And so we, we work together in a way that I think seeks to help each other develop all of our strengths. Um, I don't micromanage how anybody does anything. Like we have to make sure we do our legal and ethical obligations, but 
the idea is that you're free to kind of really develop yourself in the direction that you want to go and that we all actually support each other. We want that. Um, so that's a lot of fun. But like, you know, when you have your own business, I'm I'm a worker, I'm an owner, I'm HR, I'm finance, I'm IT, I'm marketing, I'm advertising, and I don't have a lot of agency support. So I have zero. So, you know, I do what I can to do do all the things that need to be done, but but not be totally consumed and buried by it. So if I work on any boundaries at all, they're work boundaries. Right? Um, yeah. So I ran a fitness studio in my younger 20s and like same thing we really didn't outsource anything that's actually how Rachel and I met and now I've had this wild journey but um now that like I'm getting back into the workforce yeah boundaries and right when you said it I'm like I have not realized how little boundaries I've had in like the workplace and how detrimental yeah it has been to like my well-being, my mental health, and even like starting after taking, I basically took a couple of months off because I was laid off and traveled around and whatnot. But um, now like I've started to work again and I'm like, oh, you can like feel the contrast too. And it, it's almost scary. Like, I feel like I'm having a response to it in some ways. And I really have to calm myself down and be like, just set boundaries. Like, you're okay. You're okay. You're not going to like lose yourself in this again. Um, so that's been a really interesting experience. And I can really relate to the the business owner piece of just trying to do it all and you know, you have to stop at some point. <laughs> There's the parts you love and then the parts you have to do that you don't love, but they're a necessary part of the business. And then there's, so for me, I love therapy and like all things mental health. So that's also my area of hyper-focus. So I get a lot from it. So it's, it's really quite a discipline to have to have boundaries from the thing that you love. And that also feeds you so you can have balance in your life and pay attention to the things that need to be paid attention to right? So I work pretty hard at that. <laughs> so that's kind of like, yeah, day in the life of juggling lots of balls, but trying to have fun doing it. I am curious, the collective mentality, I hadn't heard it called that before. Um, and I love it. And I love it because, especially in a field like um, mental health, where there's almost this expectation that you know, mental health professionals are like, have it all figured out. And like, they know you need to know your shit before you can like do that. And the idea, like normalizing the idea that um, even mental health professionals still need to continue to like work on developing self and developing whatever else um, is a really, really cool concept. So I'm curious um, what made that so important for you when you were pulling this all together? So I, I honestly think that I have two like big influences with that. And one is kind of funny and totally by chance. And the other one is very deliberate. And the funny one was somewhere in my late 20s, I attended like a big one day seminar of all these like leaders coming in to do like leadership talks and stuff. And the one person who said something that I will never forget is Mark Burnett, who's the dude who started Survivor. And he talked about his early days of like couch surfing and being homeless and trying to pitch this series and had this idea like there was there was no reality TV back then. And he was turned down all over the place. And he said, you know, if you need to have 10 things figured out to move forward and do something, you don't have to wait until you have all 10 things figured out. If you've got five, go. 
And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is it, right? And I'm really grateful that I heard that when I was young and I was impressionable and really open to that kind of messaging because it really set me up for a series of making a lot of moves that it was okay for me. I, I, was, I suddenly was really comfortable with uncertainty and I didn't have the discomfort that I think a lot of people do have. Um, so my, you know, thinking about life is an experiment and I, I use that a lot with clients when I'm working with them. It's like, you know, if it's too overwhelming to think about trying this change, like, let's just do it for a week and see what happens and we'll take it up or two weeks. Like that's a pretty short commitment. Right. Um, and so that was one thing. And then the second thing was probably six years ago or so I read this book, um, called reinventing organizations by uh, Frederick Leloux, who's a European, who talks about the consciousness of organizations going from command and control, this is your job, like lickety split stamp, it's very clear, you go do it, then you don't question it, all the way up to different types of organizations that um, are raising their level of consciousness collectively in a sense that it's not about controlling the output of employees work it's about creating an environment where people are naturally engaged to bring their best and to create something really cool together and so when i that the book blows my mind and he blows me away and watching his youtube videos was such a pivotal point in where i was developmentally like i was an employee at the time and so moving from being an employee to an entrepreneur was really, um, that was something that really gave me the courage because that's what formed it. So this level of consciousness is called, it's called teal. So they're colored as you move up this ladder. And so what I'm trying to do is run a teal organization, which is an organization of people where I'm, I'm not, there's a lot of freedom, but with freedom comes responsibility. And so we help each other grow. Does that make sense? I mean, that's... I probably can't explain it the way he does, but it's a, it's an ideal I definitely aspire to. It makes perfect sense to me. And I love that there is a book that somebody has done research on that I'm going to now go buy like today <laughs> because I, so I am a certified life coach. I've been doing that for about five years. I have a few different certifications and I'm still very young, um, but I can resonate a lot to what you're saying about the hyper-focused passion and just like, th this is what I'm here to do. It's, it's one of the big things I'm here to do. And specifically, I have been super passionate about people-led organizations or organizations that say they're people-led. Again, I was in advertising, which really worked at how do I, how do we promote a brand from the outside, outside in? And I started working at agencies that were like, kind of starting to scratch the surface back in like the early 2000s of like, what about the inside out? And that kind of led me to organizations that really did say that they cared about their people more than anyone has. And even in those organizations, it's, it's a, it's still, it's very clunky. And, um, and so one of the areas of passion that I have is how can I bring life coaching to an organization who wants to be all those things that you're saying, wants to be conscious, says that they're people-led, but haven't totally figured out how to bridge that gap to trust their employees to be whole, resourceful, creative. Um, and that is what a lot of coaching is. Um, and so I'm kind of in, in early conversations with 
particular advertising agencies, just because I have a background in it. So I feel like there's a language, an easy language drop in. Um, but to, to actually support companies in being more conscious through their biggest resource. Yeah, because I, I guess the fear is that if you encourage people to develop themselves, that they'll develop themselves away from the objective of the organization. And so based on that, it's a fear-based response then to control what people do and to try and strong arm their development in the way you think it should go. And, you know, the inverse is true, actually. Um, and so, you know, so we have like an incredibly low turnover rate and people want to stay because I'm not telling them what to do. Um, and, and we're all feeling really quite actualized together, which is, which is a nice place to be, right? I, it, it's this concept of servant leadership, which is much more European. So, so finding Frederick's book opened me up to European leadership literature, which is remarkably different from North American leadership literature. And I like both, and there's a lot to be gained from North American stuff. Don't get me wrong. Um, I mean, it resonates with me in like Simon Sinek's work, like the leaders eat last concept. So I've always been a like among the people, shoulder to shoulder leader, definitely a leader, but um, with people. Not I've never wanted to be a command and control. I'd be fired from organizations like that, right? Couldn't do it. Couldn't be a teacher. Couldn't be a cop. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. Janelle and I have had conversations as she's been kind of throwing her name, like throwing her name in the mix all over the place, finding jobs all over the place. And we were talking about how so many organizations say that they want like innovation or they want, you know, different thought processes. But then when you go to apply for a job, they are like, actually, we want you to just fit into like, we want this to be as easy for us as possible. <laughs> so like, fit this set of criteria so that we don't have to change anything on our end at all. You can just slide in, we can continue forward and be innovative. But it's like, okay, well, if you're hiring somebody who's been just like you for the last 15 years, they're probably, you know, not everybody, but they're probably set in their own defaults of efficiency and the innovation kind of falls away. Like it's a nice ideal, but if you really want innovation, how are you bringing in people that, you know, don't necessarily fit the 15 years within this industry, but they, they have the ability, how do we start looking for something different? I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but anyways, it sounds a little bit similar of like, how do we get out of that fear mindset and allow people to show up with what they yeah, those organizations bring. haven't, they like the ideal, which is good news, but what they haven't done is adapted their processes to fit that, right? And so it's it's kind of like parenting as well. It's like, I don't want to be the parent I had. I don't want to be controlling. I don't want to do this. Yet, yet the anxiety that rises up in allowing your child to to meet who they really are instead of trying to like mold them into who you think they should be causes so much anxiety in people that they, um, they're not good at sitting with that, right? And so similarly, the leaderships of these organizations have to learn how to process their own anxiety about losing control over where the outcome goes just for proof of concept. And then once they do it once, then the proof is in the pudding, as I say a lot, um, and off we go. But 
organizations that are um, reporting into higher global structures don't often have that the luxury to make those kinds of changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then even that is a uh, a parallel to just how how society seems to be right now too. So there's a lot of just similarities and like, and what I mean by that is like the, the, the idea of something, the concept of something, I think we're all really great at being able to, you know, speak the rhetoric, so to speak of like, here's the language, we've got the language, um, not everybody, but you know, I think we're all kind of <clears throat> starting to have language to things that we didn't have before. And then the, the processes or the, the way of actually being able to actualize it is feels like the step we're on and feels it feels really clunky to me, like at a collective level. Yeah, we talk a lot about like failure and, you know, failure, quote unquote, in the podcast in our personal lives and being works in progress. But that Rachel, to your point, like also ties to organizations. Like that's one of the questions I typically ask when I go through an interview is like, what, how do you define failure? What does it look like? And we had a really interesting conversation in it's actually called the collective, our um, monthly free gathering that we do with people. And we were talking about the speed in which when you hit a roadblock, you want to solve it. Like you want to find that solution right away. And a lot of that I think is conditioned from the workspace, right? You don't bring a problem forward unless you have a solution for it. Or <clears throat> if you don't have a solution, like you better figure out one fast because we have to produce things. So we have to move forward and get things done. And I've been yeah, I've been finding that with even interviews. It's like people, I think people are starting to embrace the idea of failure more. When I ask that question, they're like, yeah, of course you can try things. You can make mistakes, but the speed in which those things happen. And of course, like security safety from a personal standpoint of, do I have enough resources to live? If I continue to fail in like a business sense, am I, you know, are we generating enough money to be able to continue forward? Like you, you do in some ways have constraints around your time, but we don't give the space to like really explore. It's like, all right, you quick tried that, but um, okay, now we got to get forward and producing again and like making. So let's continue on with what we know. Um, and I've really been trying to figure out, I, it, like, is it possible to do it a different way? Is it, I think it is, but how do we get people to do it? Like you said, without fear or like prove the model out almost. So then people are more open. Like, have you guys been trained or were ever worked in like Scrum or Agile frameworks? I mean, that fail faster concept I really like because if you're checking in with each other all the time and you have the pulse on whether something is working or not, you just you just iterate, like you just keep adjusting and collaborating and moving as you go forward, being mindful that you do have an outcome to deliver, but there's it's only with all of our strengths together that we can actually build something great. And so to me, failure is more like when one person doesn't get the support of somebody and then, you know, turns out what they produced isn't what somebody wanted. And so that's deemed a failure, quote unquote. But if lots of people were involved along the way and it wasn't what somebody wanted in the end, it wasn't really described well at the beginning. And so I think a lot of it's about process, like a lot of those things are worked out in the wash when you're actually being really agile. And there's a lot of like things we do in my group that we, we really do follow that kind of philosophy as much as we can. Um, and we figure a lot of stuff out as we go, because I'm not 
I'm not interested in being paralyzed by analysis or not knowing what to do. We've, and, and in our line of work, we, we have to figure things out so we can do our jobs, which is to be functional, to be there, to meet people, to, you know, I'd never get anything done if I had to wait till I figured all the things out. Back to Mark Burnett. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> do you apply that principle at all to your personal life outside of work? 100%. Yeah. So? Well, I have ADHD, so I think I've always naturally been able to do that, but not not understanding it as a strength, right? Understanding it as, as you know, as culture would tell me is a weakness. Um, but but as soon as I was able to do that, I mean, I, I, I married a guy that had two kids. So my, our two oldest are my stepsons. And so that's, that's pretty agile. That's a pretty work in progress. You don't know what you're going to get from that. Nobody knows what that's like until they're going to do it. Um, you know, we, we make a lot of, we make our decisions together, but we often don't have all the things figured out and we just have to trust each other that, that between the two of us and our experiences, it's going to work out and we've, we've got the, our values and we're pointing in the right direction. So the rest of it's just going to be, it's just going to be fun. We're just going to hang on for the ride. So yeah, it works out well for the most part. I have a question around having like owning so openly your own mental health, um, and also being a mental health professional. Um, I, about a month and a half ago, month ago, I don't know, time is a thing. Um, I was diagnosed with PTSD from childhood. I am a cancer survivor and experienced some sexual assault and other, um, generational abuse. And, um, I am a coach and, I have really like in the last two weeks, I, on Instagram, I'm not really being like, Hey, everybody come pay attention to this thing that I'm doing, but I've just started to record videos of the journey. So like, like insights that I might get at any given day. Like, um, the other day I was like, your, your healing journey can't be memorized was like the idea that was coming through to me. And like, if I'm trying to memorize my way into healing, like I learned in the schooling that I went through, I'm just going to keep, I'm just going to stay in my head and it's not, nothing really changes. And, um, so I started to do that and I am, I believe that me being able to own all those aspects of myself actually makes me a more relatable coach. And it doesn't really impact too much how I can hold space for somebody. I mean, it, it impacts it from a standpoint of, I actually can hold more space for people, the more that I'm able to own all the parts of myself. Um, but there also is this like thing of like, you can't put that out there. Whoever would fucking hire you if you're like, going through your own PTSD healing recovery journey. Like what the hell? Um, so yeah, I know that I can because I'm doing it and I have clients who are like, thank you for being so real. It actually allows me to meet myself more really, really. That's not a word, but anyways, I would just love, cause you're doing it and I would love your, your take and your insights and your heart. Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. First of all, um, because I, because I, because I don't like, so before I was a therapist, I spent like 20 years in the corporate world. So I understand the, like the stigma and the idea of crafting an image that you put out there, right? That is, is that you've, you've got to be, um, 
the the product already of what you know you're trying to to sell for sure and i think the thing that i don't know if you just have to like go through life and and learn this because you can know it but it's a different thing to embody it is that being really well and mentally um healthy isn't like a linear path and it's not like one day you've arrived and now you're mentally healthy it's that it's just like an everyday thing you do like if you want to keep your teeth you should brush and floss on the daily i don't know if you have to floss daily really but you know what i mean yes you do yes you do <laughs> um and that'll prevent you from losing them you know when you're 75 probably or 80 and and so we just do that like we just take that for granted that that's what we do someone toss to do some, you know, if we're lucky, not everyone gets taught to do that when they're young and then off you go. <laughs> and so the same things apply to mental health. So it's not like if you have a bad day, you're suddenly mentally ill. And I also agree that it's not like if you have a quote unquote, something that's an official diagnosis, that means you even have mental illness. It means you've got brown hair. And so you do all the things you do to maintain brown hair. Like it's just part of our makeup and organic part of being a human in the world is kind of traumatic from the day we're born right and so you just you ebb and flow and then what makes the difference is what you do with all that stuff the community you have around you the kind of supports and the quality of the connections that you have and a lot of us go through periods of time when those are not good and that's when we end up with lingering um traumas that we can't quite figure out what's holding us back or what's got our feet in the quicksand type of thing and so you can know the things but when you start catching the um how your your body your your primitive nervous system is working to keep you safe then you can integrate the two right your your primitive nervous system and your higher thinking and that's when you're kind of cooking with gas but when you do that people feel that because their nervous system feels it so then you don't need to worry about selling your competence because they will feel that when you walk in the room so it's almost like you can take that worry off your plate i think and other people who want to judge that that's just where they're at those aren't your people necessarily even that's okay they will be one day they'll remember the feeling that they felt i appreciate that and i found that the more that i just because i'm tiptoeing my way into sharing my real, you know, the real story, not the, not the curated courageous cancer hero story. And, um, which is, you know, an aspect of that is true. And I can pat myself on the back, um, for it. And it also minimizes a lot of what the reality of the experience was for me and is, and is for a lot of some of my other cancer surviving friends as well. And, um, and the more that I am like, okay, I'm going to share this next little, like, it's more than a toe. It's like half of a foot, you know? Um, I then meet people like you, like all of a sudden you show up on the podcast and I'm like, Hey, this chick's doing it. Like, okay. There actually are more people that are, cause I have inklings. And then in my own, um, I'm an internal coach at Lululemon and a, a lot, I worked with a store in Dallas. There are about a hundred, hundred people and they would always say to me, Rachel, thank you for being you like, thank you for, because I was like, 
great. These people see me so real that like they see me come in some days where I am like struggling hard and cause I'm around them all the time. And I was like, they're never going to trust me. And in fact, they said to me, cause I wasn't trying to do that. It was just like, this is me. And they were like, they came up to me and said, thank you for letting me see that somebody as pulled to get like, as you, you know, your shit, you're wise, we trust you. And you, you're also, you're, you break down and then we get to see that you can be both. And that is permission giving. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. A hundred percent, right? Just, just owning yourself. When you own your stuff, no one can use it against you. Right? Like no one can really come up to me and be like, oh, you're, you're spotty when it comes to things. I'm like, yep. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. Cause I own it. Like it doesn't hurt me. Right. Um, you know, the other thing too, I talk about sometimes like in particular with ADHD, which a lot of people have developmental trauma from as well, um, is, is you don't necessarily have to talk about the label, like the diagnosis. Cause it, because we're so different, we're so heterogeneous, it means different things and it shows up differently in different people's lives. But what you can talk about is what you need to advocate for yourself. Right? Which doesn't involve necessarily, you can talk about for sure the diagnosis if you want, but I'm just saying you don't have to, to still be authentic. So I can say, here's what I know I need. Uh, and from my boss, for example, if I'm an employee, I need regular meetings. I need to follow up after a meeting to make sure I clearly understood what you want from me. I need you to like visually paint me a picture of what done looks like. Brene says that it's amazing. Um, all of those things, those are all things that people with ADHD need. And you can have that whole conversation without ever saying, I need this because I have ADHD. Because it's your, your, that's your health history. I mean, I don't go around talking necessarily about what my ovaries need or what my uterus is doing one day. You know what I mean? So everyone's different and, and you can do it and massage it in different ways and tweak it until you find whatever the comfortable space is that that feels good that's unique to you and that's important to you and how you want to have all those things integrate yeah i love that i i would find that <clears throat> or i found that since i've had the diagnosis it's given me the ability to know to like look at something and to start to recognize within myself, like, oh, that's where some of these tendencies lie. And that has allowed me then with the people in my life to be able to say exactly what you were saying. Like, I didn't even know what to ask for before. Cause I was just like, I don't know what the fuck's happening. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it was not, it doesn't feel funny when I'm going through it. Um, but yeah, I mean, that has been powerful for me. It's then powerful for other people because they know they know how to show up for you or how to say like I actually can't do that right now. Do you have somebody else? Um, and that's been amazing. It's been very empowering and reestablishing a sense of agency for myself. Hi, hi, come play. We are promoting our monthly workshops. Each month we focus on a different facet of authenticity and we get a group together. We get curious, we ask questions, we have conversations, we try things on, learning from each other, seeing what works for another person. Does that work for us or do we want to find our own way? We will drop a link in the show notes below where you can join our upcoming workshop. In addition to the workshops on the third Thursday of each month, we offer our monthly collective. That's our free monthly community gathering where we get together and chat all things authenticity with a rad group of people. We would love to see you there. 
All right, let's jump back in. Christina, in your, your journey, how did that unfolding process happen of you discovering your needs around like, your, your mental health? And then, I mean, to the point where now you're creating TikTok videos about it and, and sharing. Um, so I, I was diagnosed really late with ADHD, late meaning like I've only really known and, and identified and understood that I have it for the past four years. So I was pretty much like 40, 41, I'm 45 this year. Um, so I bumbled through, <laughs> you know, in some ways good, like, you know, I've, I've, I've had episodes of kind of like a, an intense period of time with anxiety. I've had a couple of depressive episodes, but what I know now is that that wasn't really depression or anxiety by itself. It was actually depression or anxiety driven by undiagnosed ADHD. So depression and anxiety are organic manifestations of what happens when ADHD isn't identified. You know, undiagnosed ADHD leads to anxiety because it's really anxiety inducing and untreated anxiety unchecked leads to depression. So then, so then when you look back, I think when you have a late diagnosis, a whole lot of things make sense. Um, and then with ADHD in particular, it's like, is that a problem to be solved? Is this like a symptom? Because I have a lot of strengths and I've somehow managed to land where I am now in life because of a lot of those things. So it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, what, what's, what do I do here? And so I, there's, um, there's a lot of work I think that goes involved into understanding how it affects your particular brain, how it affected me and then what I need to do to leverage that. But, um, I, we had a family member diagnosed, um, long before it occurred to me. Um, and then, and then that I could have it because I present, I don't present like somebody who has it. And even when I went and had my, I had a form, finally had a formal assessment. Cause I was like, do I really have this? <laughs> I think I do. But you know, that thing that everybody who has ADHD goes through, do I really have ADHD? Um, and so sure enough, cause it's like, you know, what they said to me was kind of funny was you don't present at all. Like you have it. So if we had to diagnose you based on these interviews, we couldn't diagnose you. But when we hear your history, and your whole story and everything that came before wow you're a rager like you know so when i fill out those assessment forms according to my 20s life in my 20s i have severe like combined type adhd like i'm in the moderate to severe category but when i fill it out now i'm kind of like you know a little bit inattentive barely i'm probably just like as inattentive as any other neurotypical person might be but i'm i'm pretty well treated right but i've figured out how to leverage it for my strengths and for my family and to like get the best of what my brain has to offer for sure. So I think when I started making the TikToks, it was like a joke in October. Like I'm one of the old people that joined TikTok in the first lockdown because I was bored. I just wanted to, I needed to watch cat videos and like laugh and like decompress. Um, and then I threatened my kids to make videos for a while over the summer to embarrass them and they were horrified. And then in October, um, after a few of these coronas from my fun facts, um, I convinced my husband to do an ADHD couples TikTok because um, he he's not into social media at all. So I had no idea where this was going to go or that anybody would see him. And so we did it. And then just the response was from there. People really liked it. And I think it's because I talk about ADHD sometimes in terms of symptoms, but I talk about it from the inside out. So it's not just like a symptom list, but it's like, here's what it feels like. 
And so that's how I do my videos. And I think that's what resonates with people. So I'm, I'm like a Gen Xer with, I don't know, there's like, I'm, it's not a lot, like, in, you know, compared to like all the other people I have like 35,000 followers. But for like me as an old girl, that's a lot, right? So my kids think it's really funny. But yeah, that's awesome. so I really love your perspective on it. Because I think when it comes to, I mean, a lot of areas in our life, whether it be mental health or even like you said, just like personality traits, which I mean, and one, one and the same sometimes, um, we can dub our strengths as weaknesses because to our earlier point, they maybe don't fit oh. in or conform. I was never told any of my strengths that I know are strengths today as a child or as a young girl or as a young woman. No one in my life told me that those were my strengths. Yeah. I was criticized for them. And they're the very things that make me successful yes. today. And I think so many people, I mean, that is the case for so many people. We all like, we're, I don't know. I feel like for me, it's like, I'm bumbling around and just like, I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what to, and it's like, yeah, a lot of times it's because the things that I'm actually good at are the things that it's like, all right, well, yeah. And like, you need to conform, you need to get rid of this. So that I'm too focused on trying to like fit into whatever, people need me to fit into that I've been blind to my own strengths. Um, so I have a question and you can decline to answer it, but I am curious, like when it comes to mental health and ADHD and having, um, having that perspective of like, this can actually be a strength and like a core part of who you are and what you can offer to the world. Do you find that medication is useful? for that or is that just like another form of numbing because we talk a lot about in the podcast how people use alcohol or drugs or food when you just like can't tackle a problem um and I'm sure it goes both ways right I'm sure there's time for medication and there's not but I'm sort of like curious on your perspective knowing that if like for example and correct me if this is wrong but if like you were taking medication do you feel like it would have numbed one of your strengths versus allowed you to accept it does that make sense Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, thank you for asking that question. It's a thoughtful one. And it's one that everybody wrestles with, um, especially adults who are late diagnosed, who have made it this far, quote unquote, without medication, or they've made it this far without ADHD medication. But what they have dabbled with in the past is, you know, a, a trial or a period of time using an antidepressant. So um so the short answer to that is that yes, I'm a big fan of medication and here's why. Um, you know, before I was, I knew about ADHD, so I didn't learn about it in grad school because it's not really taught. So I, I became kind of more specialized in it later, late, later as a private practitioner. Um, and I would have never said to somebody coming to me for depression and anxiety, yeah, you need to go to your doctor for sure and explore an antidepressant. I mean, unless I really thought it, it's just not the first thing because antidepressants side by side with um, medication either or, or psychotherapy have kind of the same outcomes in terms of efficacy, how well they work and combined, they work even a bit better together, right? So whether you go medication or whether you go therapy, uh, for depression and anxiety of an equal opportunity to feel better. That is not the case with ADHD. With ADHD, psychostimulant medication is head and shoulders way more efficacious, far more. It's one of the more, um, I mean, it, we can kind of get into the weeds, but the effect size of it is double that of, of antidepressants, meaning that chances are it's going to do what it needs to do 
almost on your first trial, although sometimes it takes three to four months in tweaking between different medications to find your one. But whereas antidepressants will kind of take you to a baseline because you don't want to feel those lows and those sadness for as long as you do, you can't selectively numb emotions. And so it kind of numbs, and I don't even like the word numb, it just evens out all of them. So it evens out the joy, it evens out the sadness. So you can kind of get your bearings and catch a breath, which you need to do to be able to do the work, right? And so if you need to have that, please go get it. Because <laughs> we don't need to suffer any more than we're already suffering in this life. And just because you go on an antidepressant for a period of time doesn't mean you're gonna be on it forever. Some people do need to be. But some people can go on for a year and come off because they've done the therapy now. They've learned what to look for so they don't fall into that hole again or that they get help sooner. That's the idea. With, with psychostimulants, um, it's not like you have to take it for three months to know if it's working and you feel like crap in the meantime and you have all these crazy side effects. Like you kind of know in the first week, almost in the first hour, whether it's going to work. And the side effects are like very specific to deal with. And for the most part, you it, it works right away so there's not a numbing i think sometimes people are treated with an antidepressant and they have adhd and that's not what we want an adhd brain to be on if you've got a concurrent mood disorder like not just as a result of having adhd but actual adhd and depression side by side you might need both or you might need a different strategy and people can really trust if they're seeing an ADHD specialist what to do. But ADHD medicine does not numb a strength. What it does is allows you to get all your nonsense stuff out of the way so that you can experience your strength, right? It, it helps you untie your hands from behind your back. So it doesn't change who you are. It allows who you are to introduce itself to the world. Has a really big difference. Thank you for sharing that. That's, that makes sense. It absolutely does. Because I, I definitely have like a connotation with medication, but I also don't spend a lot of time thinking about medication. Um, luckily, I guess. Yeah, ADHD untreated has a mortality rate um, that is. I think the the average is it shaves between ten and twenty years off your life expectancy, and it's double for women than it is for men. And so it's serious and an untreated ADHD leading to other comorbidities like depression, anxiety, and the, the fatality in depression is potential suicide. And then there's risky decision-making and impulsivity, distracted driving, car wrecks, all kinds of shit that is a result, addiction is a result of untreated ADHD. Like it's a major public health problem. So not taking medication for ADHD is ignoring all of those side effects of that are natural consequences of untreated ADHD. So part of the time blindness problem with ADHD is we don't want to do today to affect something in the future. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, yeah, you can go freewheeling and spinning and doing your thing. But if ultimately you want to do it for as long as possible, then you might want to consider make that, like you just got to manage that stuff. There's so much going on in my, like, just what's coming up for me is like the latent diagnoses and how many more people probably could benefit from, even though 
I mean, myself too, like I presented on paper, there's no, people were like, no, like you made it to the top of like your field in this world. And like, there's no way. And um, we've had quite a few people on the podcast this year who have talked about these, like, you know, later in life, actually having these things show up and needing to address them. And um, I don't know what's coming up for me is just like, how, how everything is coming to light in the world and the new language that is coming up to be able to, and and the normalization of, you know, being, um, would you say neurotypical? I think you said. Yeah. So neurotypical versus, which is, so the, the data loosely says about 80% of the world is neurotypical. maybe 20% is neurodivergent. So that ADHD, autism, all the different neurodivergencies that come from having like learning differences. It's not just ADHD or autism or learning, learning differences, but you know, all the things that are not. Yeah. (laughs) And when you spoke earlier about, you could have a diagnosis, but it might not be at full blown mental illness. Would you say that the 20% is kind of the, the full, like the actual mental illness and that a diagnosis could still exist within the 80%? Oh, it, you like so. So everybody. Yes. This is what. Yes. Have any yes. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Neurotypical. I'm only talking about like um, processing and how you think about things. Like, so it's not you're not mentally ill to to have. I mean, we're getting to a place. Actually, yesterday I just tweeted a story from the Lancet, which is a a, a high impact peer reviewed medical journal, with a commentary in there saying um, the concept of neurodiversity. How does that impact research? Is that helpful? Do we like, it's funny that why is ADHD sometimes I think even in mental health, because for me, it's, it's no different than type one diabetes. You know, you're, you're born with a pancreas, it's pooched. It's not making insulin. So then we replace the insulin and off you go. You still have to watch your carbs and eat well and wear sunscreen and not smoke and be a good person, just like the rest of us. But as long as you get the insulin, you're functioning normally on the inside and there you go, right? I'm, I'm really dumbing that down, but you know what I'm saying for the purpose of it. ADHD is no different. You've got a brain that isn't opt- making the right levels or sucking up the right amounts of dopamine and norepinephrine as, as a fully functioning one, or it's a few years behind every step of the way. And so we replace that function and off you go, right? But if we make you go through life, without having that optimized, but we expect you to do the same as everybody else who has that optimized. Yeah, no shit, you're gonna be anxious and depressed. And especially in a performance-based culture like we have, holy geez. So the earlier you can identify those things and of course recognize them as strengths and enrich the environment around a kid and celebrate the things that, that make them unique and gear them towards the things that they're good at instead of the things I think you should do because I'm your parent, then yeah, would we have this epidemic of mental health problems of people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s? Probably not. <laughs> but that's not how that's not how we are. Yeah, I'm just I'm grateful for the conversation to normalize latent diagnoses because um or just latent identification. Um, I'm 38. So you know, I spent a good portion of my, you know, young professional career being successful. And, and then, so not only normalizing the latent identification, but also then 
within the space of like, I need to grieve a lot of, you know, the decisions and the way that my life, I experienced my life during that time without having that identification. And, you know, also inviting myself to like make a note that like, Hey, at some point when it feels right, also look at, you know, what you gained from, from having, um, the experience that you did. Um, and I can't, I can't leap, I can't leapfrog that yet. Um, I can a little bit, I can kind of see it, but if I just go straight to that, I kind of bypass a lot of, um, the grieving that I, I really am in, but I love the invitation of being able to know that there, there was a gift in that too. Oh, um, so much of a gift. I mean, I, so I think I can share of, of two episodes of depression that I had. One was postpartum. And I took an antidepressant there and it made a huge difference. And I knew I needed to do that. And it wasn't even about me. It was about being able to be there for my family. And so that was a different experience than another time I experienced depression when I did not take medication when I could have, because I knew I needed to be depressed. And it's, I did not experience joy during that time because there was good things happening too, but I needed to slow down and I needed to figure out how the F did I end up in this position? what the clusterfuck was my life sorry not being consistent there with my swearing <laughs> um and how do i make sure this never happens again and so i spent about a year in that space but i was very conscious it was the first time in my life i was really mindful and i was like i will i will never i never want to find myself in this position again so how, i need to i need to figure out what went wrong and I knew that if I, um, I knew that was just something therapeutic for me. And that was the first time I went to therapy as well. So I, I made it all the way to like 29 before I experienced therapy. The one thing I tell young people that I see right now is like, I was, I was so old. I feel like I see teenagers sometimes now and I'm like, dude, like you have no idea how amazing it is that you know, your parents are helping to provide this experience for you now, because even if even if we don't get where we want to get now, you know you can do this. You know this is something you can access for the rest of your life. Holy geez, I'm so jealous <laughs> for my younger self. Anyway, I digress. But the point being that there's, it's okay to really thoughtfully consider what you might need from an experience because the human condition is, is both beautiful and painful. And we experience... Um, the pain and, and it's just part of being human and we and to be able to embrace that and to know that there's something for it in you and that all the things that i went through in my life they're what make me a great therapist now because i can see people and that's what we want to be connected we want to see each other right and so did i know when i was in the bowels of despair that I would ever have this or no, you can't know. So you just have to, you just have to, there has to be part of you that's willing to hope that it's still in front of you. And if you have that, then you'll, you'll figure it out. I was chatting with a friend on purpose, which we talk a lot about, you know, everyone wants to find their purpose. They want to know what they, they want to do with their life. And um, one of the things that I had personally, because I, I kind of feel that way. I'm like, I still don't fully really, I mean, does anyone, I don't know, but I, I'm wrestling with the concept of like, what people feel so called to do something. And I'm like, I don't know. Um, 
but I think that's part of it, right? Is like what I've started to flip is um, I'm about to be 30. So like, I'm, you know, still early on in my life. And I'm like, I think there's just like, you have to have more experiences sometimes in your story before you can get there. And like, we are trying to rush it and it is, it's like, yeah, having a stint of depression or having this happen to you, like you don't need to know what your purpose is in your twenties. And I think we've kind of, I mean, not really at any point or it changes. I mean, there's so many things. I'm just like, what? It? Okay. I'm like, I just keep telling myself, I'm like, you will experience things and it will continue to unfold. And eventually whatever the Steve jobs quote, right. You'll start to look and the dots will start to connect and it'll be like, Oh, this is what I'm called to do now. But I might be in the middle of that story still and it's not time to know yet, which and I'm not patient all the time. <laughs> so I would like to know what I need to do with my life. But um, I'm, I'm really trying to be like, it's okay. Like you're in the story still and you always will be, but you just don't have enough data or you're still in the experiment. It's not time to have an answer or solution. I think also the world doesn't necessarily say to us early on, whatever you find joy in doing, that's your thing. Because when you're young, what you find joy in doing isn't necessarily something that the grown-ups see translating into a job that's going to pay for you. So you're off their payroll one day, right? And so then they guide you towards these things that are like jobs. So when I was going to university, and I don't know if, you know, the one, the one benefit of, of the kind of parenting I had was that I, I never got the message that you have to go to university to get this job so that you can at that, da, 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 right? It was like, I still thought you went to university to find yourself. So I went looking for myself and <laughs> had a very fun and amazing process like through that journey. Um, but I'm blown away by how it's shifted to now kids go to school for a job. And maybe that's a function of, well, it's expensive. So, you know, you don't want to waste your money or your time, but that's not what university was decades before either. It was a time you're, that's such a precious, those years are so precious. It's the only time in life you have to go be someplace without the kinds of responsibilities that we have to, to really figure out who you are. And if you're bogged down with a whole lot of other things, then that, that developmental process just gets suspended until later. And if I look back on the last 20 years of my life, it's pretty clear from the time I was 17 or 18 what my calling would be, but I didn't, no one called it that. They just said, pay more attention and apply yourself in school. And why are you talking so much? And why are you like boy crazy? And why are you like, why can't you focus? And why are you doing this? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do. I could do a lot of things. Well, and that, to your point, I, like I said, I'm almost 30 and I feel like I'm doing it now because I definitely went to college being like, get your business degree, get out, do all the internships, do all the things, pay it off. And now I'm, you know, in my last 28, 29, I've just been like, I don't know. I just like sold my home. Don't have a job. I live out of Airbnbs and in guest bedrooms. And I feel like I'm doing what I would have in theory done when I was 18 to 24, but I missed it. So now I'm just like, all right, guess you're going to do it when you're 30, <laughs> like, which honestly kind of fun. And I have a lot of experience under my belt. So maybe, maybe this is, and, and like monetary funds that I wouldn't have had in my twenties, that makes this a little bit more cushion comfortable. Cause I'm like, I've run a business, I've owned homes, you know, I've done all this. And I'm just like, 
I'm going to be 20 years old now. <laughs> Bye everybody. Do it. Give yourself the time to do it. Have fun. And then, and then keep doing what brings you joy. Yeah. It, it is true. Like, I don't want to sound kooky. Do what brings you joy and the money will follow. It's kind of true. You know, and, 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 you know, the, the neurotypical thing I'll apply to that is you do want to hone your craft then at that point, you do want to be as good as you can be. It's not about comparing yourself to other people. It's about your own internal sense of, of, of developing a mastery. So follow your joy, follow the thing that, that lights you up, but be a master at it as well. Right. Don't just be, if you want it, if you want it to be your income supply. <laughs> If you don't care, if you have like another thing, then that's fine. Then just be willy nilly. It's whatever, you know? I've been really just trying to own all my things. And I had a job interview. This is people are like, why aren't you getting a job? Probably because I say stuff like this. But <laughs> the woman was like, what is your ideal career? And I was like, I would like to make, go to haunted hotels and film it. And right now I bring Tinder dates on it because <laughs> I do. <laughs> But it's like to speak like what brings me the most joy right now? Literally, it's that. And I was like, I don't know. I'm not going to make up some like, I want to be a CMO or, you know, whatever. Like, I was just like. And it's like a creative process. So you like exactly, and you like seeing what happens and you like setting up a scenario and you like watching people um, be at their best is what I would pull out of all that. They'll be like, yeah, come work for me because I want you to come do that in my company. That's pretty cool. Exactly. That's what I said. I was like, it's storytelling, it's creation, it's the like curiosity. But so I've been saying stuff like that just because I'm also at this point exploring how do I show up as me? Because in my 20s, I was like, I'm going to be this professional robot. I'm not, you know, I'm going to fit the description because I know I can fake that. And you're like, oh, she's so professional and polished. Like we can hire her, but I also don't want to work at those companies anymore. If that's what you value, like my soul will get sucked by the time I leave. Um, but yeah, like following the joy, sometimes I'm like, man, will people, will there be people that appreciate that? And I know there are. But it's like following the joy, but learning how to use their words to describe the outcome of what you do is the thing to pair with it. Yes. And I'm probably missing that part because I'm still just like, well, here's, here I yeah, am. What you kind of describe is you can think on your feet, you can jump into a situation and survive. You're probably great in front of a room doing a presentation, pitching something, all of those kinds of things. That's what those, those are the transferable skills from what you described. Your sounds more fun than doing a presentation in front of a room. Or maybe you're just saying the, the absolute unfiltered truth because you don't actually want to work at those places. I think that I know this might be a little self-sabotage. <laughs> it's probably true. I've been not self-sabotage. That's self present. Well, I mean, that's self care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's the coach. Oh, exactly. Oh, I just, like I said, I think it's also, can someone see value in the things that don't seem valuable in the typical corporate space? If someone is like, oh, that's cool. And there are assets there. Um, and yes, I do need to communicate them on my own if I am truly trying to go there, but I'm, I'm like, I'm so sick of proving myself. This is a whole tangent, but um, sick of like proving myself to people. Whereas it's been interesting because I've started to do freelance work and it's really refreshing where it's relationship first where I'm meeting these people and like, they kind of know me. We maybe have been at a couple networking events. And then all of a sudden, for example, I was just talking to someone and she's like, what have you been up to? And I'm like, Oh, I'm doing like a couple websites for people. And she's like, I need a website. You want to do mine? And I'm like, sure. And we were meeting and going over it. 
and she has no idea my background, right? Just because she likes me and like, you know, can see something in me. She'd agreed to work with me and we were talking about it. And I'm like, yeah, well, I, you know, I did marketing at like a tech startup. I worked at, um, you know, mind body, which she's doing like a dance fitness thing. And I also own my own business. And she's like, oh, so you really know your stuff. And I'm like, oh yeah. Like, I, I don't even like think to, to like, to say those things. Right. Cause it's just like, well, I know I can do it. So just like, trust me that I'm telling you I'm capable of doing this. <laughs> like, and I feel like my brain thinks that way, but I like, and I don't like, I just don't want to like prove myself. It's just like, I'm telling you, I can do it. Trust me that I can. <laughs> and if I don't do it, you'll, you'll learn and we can deal with that. But like, I know I'm capable and I don't really want to have to be like, well, here are all my credentials and all the, you know, maybe you just kind of like resent all the times in the past that you've totally. had to yeah, like prove yourself to people who were determined to misunderstand your strengths for what they were. Totally. Right? Which is like that, that's that nervous system. That's that primitive, like your inner cave woman is strong. She is. She's, she's protecting you, right? But does she need to protect you anymore? Is the question. Wow. Maybe. I feel like, am I going to get a bill after this? <laughs> Thank you, Christina. <laughs> no, but maybe you can help me with my website. There you go. <laughs> Gotcha. Yeah, I have to do all that stuff myself. So yeah. that's like, I like it. And it's a lot of fun. But it's like, it's a lot of work too, right? Yes, it so is. yes, it is. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you for the, the coaching. <laughs> I know we, we are about at time. Is there anything else here that feels important to share? You know, for me, it's fun talking to you guys, because, because knowing that, um, it's just that reminder that is always so, it's always been important to me in my life, but just everyone is in the place where they should be in figuring out their process. And we're always, I think, especially as, as, as women, which is like the heteronormative way from a gender point of view, like we always are told, we're just given this image of what we're supposed to be chasing. And when I was in my 20s, I really identified with this idea of being like a seeker. I don't know if that's cool anymore, but, you know, but but even in being a seeker, the the surface level of that story is that it's out there and I need to go find her. And I, what I realized now in my 40s is that she's not out there. She's just sitting right here. And what I need to do is be brave enough to introduce her to everybody. And 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 the only way you do that is just by doing it and letting the chips fall where they may and when you own your shit like i said no one can use it against you and so that's a lot of work that's like life work is actually being proud of who you are rather than you know thinking of all the things and so then you know so then oh does that mean like no you don't have to go strive for anything no like i still had to i want to do this so i had to go get a, the degree <laughs> i had to work hard at it i couldn't just do it because i felt like I was good at it and I wanted to do it because I wanted to do it in a way that had some job security, right? So, cause you know, that's important. That was important to me. Um, so, you know, it, it just, it took, it took time. Do I wish I would have done it in my twenties and not in my late thirties? Yeah, would have been a lot easier, but would I have been as smart or as good at it or as ready for it? Probably not, right? So, so it's, it's okay. It's all okay. It's okay. Like just be in this moment. Yeah. It's I being, so Janelle is about to be 30 and I'm 38 and we have people of all different ages across, like 
late like 60s, 70s. And, and that's the thing that it can be really easy in any given moment to be like, ah, oh, damn, gosh, Janelle's so lucky that she's getting to do this right now. But then there's other things, you know, that's the linear, that's the linear mindset. And yep. I've been kind of thinking about it all is like, uh, I'll like say that, share this sometimes it's alphabet soup, actually. It's not like the alphabet is linear, but we're actually in alphabet soup. And so mm-hmm. there's moments where Janelle and I seem to be at the same point, but then we kind of go and she's doing this other thing that maybe I've dealt with, or maybe I haven't, um, and vice versa. And so we kind of are just like swimming around in this, you know, lake in this ocean. And, um, it's yeah. not about who's doing what, where it's about the fact that we're all, um, getting access to, um, the, the invitation to actually get to know ourselves and, and to be able to have conversations with other people who are, who are, um, not trying to expertise their ways through it either, like actually experiencing it too, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So thank you for being a part of that. Oh, thanks for having me. It's so cool to talk to you guys about this and so nice to meet you. And, um, I'm grateful that you you found me and connected. Yes. Friends from the internet, my favorite people. Uh, we do close with uh, two final questions. The first being, how do you live your true north in one word? Mindfully, mindfulness. And then last but not least, if people want to get a hold of you, watch some of your TikTok videos or connect with you, work with you, how can they do that? Um they can connect so the website is dig a little deeper.ca and at the bottom of that are all our social media links but my instagram is dig a little deeper therapy and my tiktok because i didn't initially join to be a therapist on tiktok i initially joined to just watch cat videos is my uh personal handle which is stina 905 s-t-i-n-a 905 is my tiktok so yeah people can go and laugh at old Gen Xer. I'm actually a Xennial, which I learned from, from TikTok. I know. So I'm like, wait, what does that mean? Oh, so I'm, I'm a Gen X on the outside and a millennial on the inside. It's actually just that it's this like few years of overlap in between Gen X and millennial. Oh, as a 45 year old, like I'm 45 in a month. And so 44, I shouldn't age myself too fast. So I'm like right at the top end of the oldest millennials, I think. And I'm a younger Gen Xer. My husband's six years older than me. He's a proper Gen X. So we like all the same music. We have all the same cultural references, TV shows, all that kind of stuff. But I've always been so inspired by the millennial cohort. And I think we have them to thank for our current wellness and mental health landscape and understanding that I think is changing the course of human history, actually, um, which is which is really incredible and i've always been inspired and it and felt like that on the inside so what i found out from TikTok is you can actually take a quiz online buzzfeed has a good one that tells you if you're truly a zennial or not and that's what i am love oh my god TikTok is so educational it's amazing it's the it. best i love it i know i do I too love the community the adhd community on TikTok is phenomenal that's really cool. so is the cancer survivorship oh, um, yeah. community there it's good definitely definitely yeah, yeah. So fun. well thank you yeah. so much christina this yeah. has been thank amazing you. i'm so glad we made this happen and thank you also for being so open 
to a random outreach on the internet. I always appreciate when people are like, sure, I'll talk to you. I'm like, cool. Or I don't think of it as random. It was happened for a reason. It's true. This has been another episode of the True North Collective podcast. For more from Rachel and I, check us out on the gram at the True North Collective underscore. And make sure you're signed up for our mailing list. You can do that at thetruenorthcollective.org to stay up to date on all of our resources, tools, and upcoming events. We appreciate you being here with us. We'll see you next time.